Today we will be looking at the first five verses of Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to talk about the importance of the church. When you look at the letters in the New Testament that were written, almost all of them were written to churches. There was an establishment of churches that were taking place. The church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, the church in Colossae, uh, the church of Rome. Uh, some of the New Testament letters, like Philemon, uh, like 3 John, were written to individuals, but the majority of them were written to churches. And they were written a, a lot of doctrine, a lot of correction on doctrine, a lot of behavioral issues, a lot of things to, to redirect, we find, within the epistles. And that's what we find as well here in Philippians. And when I think of the church and the importance of the church, I think of my own experience. I grew up attending church. My parents were part of the Methodist church. Um, my, actually, I think my mother was Lutheran. My father was Methodist. When they got married, they began to go to a Methodist church. I was baptized as an infant into the Methodist church. And I remember the very first thing that I ever heard from God was in that Methodist church. I, we, we had gathered all the kids together uh, for chapel to sing, you know, This Little Light of Mine and some other songs. And before This Little Light of Mine, the gal that was leading worship said, God has chosen you as the light of the world. You, she's telling kids, I'm eight, nine years old. I didn't even really, I could have been younger even than that. You are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. And there was something about that being proclaimed. It was the first thing I remember ever being spoken to by God about that God had chosen me, that I would be a light, that I would be salt. Also, a little bit later on, I committed my life to Christ there in that church, in that Methodist church. I'd gone to MYF, which was Methodist Youth Foundation. There was a youth pastor that was there. I got there early. He sat down across the table from me and he said, are you going to heaven? And I said, yeah, I'm 13 years old now. And he says to me, how do you know? And I said, because I believe in God, which is what I'd been taught in the church that we attended. If you believe in God, you go to heaven. And he said, well, does the devil believe in God? And I said, yeah. He said, is the devil going to heaven? I said, no. He said, then it takes more than just believing that God exists, doesn't it? And he explained to me that I had to receive Christ, that I had to invite him in, that I had to be born again, that there had to be a transformation in my life. And he led me in a prayer and I gave my life to Christ. And I can tell you that I was radically transformed even at 13 years old. I found myself wanting to know more about Jesus, wanting to know more about the Bible. I was hungry. I wanted to go to church. And I can tell you that even though there were certain times when I wanted to go to church, I can tell you that a lot of times I didn't want to go to church, but all of a sudden I had a desire to go to church and to find out more about the Lord. I can also tell you that there in that Methodist church, although it was very different than what we do, that when we would start singing certain songs, even as a, as a teenager, I would be drawn into God's presence. One of my favorite songs that we did in the Methodist church was Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, my song shall rise to thee. And how I remember God just moving in my life as a teenager there in that church. And I think about what we do as a church as well. And I hope that all of those kind of things are taking place and more. I hope that God is meeting people, that God is moving in the lives and in the hearts of individuals, because that's really what church is about. 
Now, before we get into our text, and we're going to see that there is a conflict between a couple of gals that are in this church in Philippi, and so he wants to give them direction on how to fix that conflict. Before we do that, I thought it would be good for us to consider five things the Bible says about the church. That's where I want to start. Five things the Bible says about the church, and then we'll consider the direction that he gives to the church of Philippi, because Jesus is perfect, right? He does, he does perfect works in our life. He's doing perfect things in our lives, but we're not. I have a friend of mine who pastors a church who says people are messy. That's the truth. We sin. We need God's grace. I love the passage where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Aren't you so glad for that verse? Aren't you so glad that God tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more? Because when we find that we have failed, God's grace is greater than our failure and how absolutely amazing that is. So the first thing that I have is that the church is the bride of Christ. We are literally betrothed to Christ right now. We are his fiance. He has brought us together. He has established his church and we are his bride. Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 27. And this is the section of Scripture where it's telling husbands their roles and wives their roles. And this is what it says to the husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Just listen to that line again. That he might present her a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. That's what God's doing within us. I don't know that we can say that we are a glorious church today. I don't know that we can say that we don't have spot or wrinkle, but I know that God's at work in us. And I know that God's bringing us to this place it goes on to say then, um, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, to the Corinthian church, this is Paul speaking, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He says, I have betrothed you. He, he had planted the church in Corinth and he says, and I have betrothed you to Christ. You and I, as the church, are betrothed to him. In Revelation 19, 7 and 9, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Did you note that? His wife has made herself ready. Well, Jesus is the one who made all of our forgiveness available, but we're the ones that have to ask him to forgive us and make things right. And we even know that if we have unconfessed, un unrepented sin in our lives, that that can keep us at a distance from God. And so if you're feeling like you want to be closer to God, you know, there's that passage in James which says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But do you know the rest of the passage? you know what it says right after that? 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. On the concept of drawing near to God, it was making sure that we get sin out of our lives so we can have that close relationship with him. And so he says, um, I, um, this is, the, again, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The, um, for his wife has made herself ready. And then, and to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. This is the righteousness that we have in Christ. That's what the linen stands for, that we are righteous by the blood of the lamb, that none of the sins that we have been committed have been applied to us at all. It says clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. The, the second thing that the Bible tells us about the church is that Jesus is the one who established it. He's the one who established the church. And this is why when people start to get really negative on the church, they start to pick on the church. I always think that's a bad idea. I don't think the church is perfect. I think there's all kinds of things that are taught in the church that are, that are not right. I think people do all kinds of things wrong. I think leaders in church do all kinds of things that are wrong because... Again, we're, we're unperfect people. However, the church is a work in process. We are being made into what God has us to be made into, and we know what that end result is. We know where we are today, and we know where we're going. And so Jesus established the church. In Matthew 16, he's talking to Peter. He's in Caesarea Philippi. And he says, um, And also I say unto you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, the word Peter is the name given to Peter by Jesus. His name was Simon, but he gave him a new name. The name was Rock, and the name doesn't mean pebble. I heard someone say one time, well, the main name means pebble, and um, Jesus was going to build his church on a pebble. The name means rock. It means a rock. It doesn't mean bedrock, which he's going to make mention of in a moment, but it means rock. So he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, so he's making a play on his name, you are rocky, and on this rock, and he uses the word petro, uh, uh, Petra, which is a foundational rock, to build his church. He's not building his church on Peter, but Peter is a part of it. This is important to re remember. Let me jump ahead here a little bit. I'm going to come back to that verse, but let me jump ahead here a little bit to Ephesians 2, 20 and 21. It says, having been built, this is the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It wasn't just Peter that the church was built on. It was the apostles. Jesus walked with them for three years. He established them. And then the church was built on them. They were the ones that took the church around the world. They were the ones that, that shared their faith with younger men who then shared their faith with younger men. And so they were part of it. It goes on to say, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That is, that the foundations of this, this church were by the prophets. Now, when it says prophets here, is that the Old Testament prophets or is it certain prophets that we find in the book of Acts? And the answer to that is probably both. We, the, 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 the concepts of the church, even though some say you can't find the church at all in the Old Testament, I think you can, but the concepts of the church you can clearly find. <laughs> the fellowship, 
the interaction, the encouragement, the love that we're supposed to have for one another, all can be found in the Old Testament with the prophets. And I also think that God used the first century prophets to help build the foundation of this church because the word of God wasn't completed yet. It had to be completed. And so we had prophets like Agabus in the book of Acts and a couple other kinds of prophets that were there. So Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this rock. And he uses the word Petra to talk about it. But the important part of that is that Jesus is the one who is building the church. He's the one who's doing it. He's the one who's put us in it. And he's the one that's done, uh, that has done the work. The third thing is that we are guaranteed success. And I love this. We're called by him to go out and be witnesses for him. We're called by him to preach the gospel. We are supposed to preach the gospel so much that the Bible says in Mark 16, preach the gospel to every creature. You preach the gospel to your dog or cat lately? I'm not quite sure that's exactly what he meant. But just in case, you might think there are some people that don't need to hear the gospel. He says preach the gospel to every creature. But this uh, guarantee of success is again in Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. I read the first part of it. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, the gates of Hades don't move. Sometimes we get the idea that we're inside the church, and we're looking outside, we open the dirt toward, there's the gates of hell, ooh, uh, you know, Satan's after us. But I am persuaded, and I can't remember who it was that said it, but they said that Satan is far more afraid of a Christian that has discovered his real place in Christ, then we should ever be of Satan. Because when we discover who we are, the power of the spirit that we have, the power of connecting with him through prayer, we are extremely effective. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. It doesn't mean we're not going to be attacked by, by, by demonic things. There's other promises that speak to that. Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions. The serpents and scorpions there are a metaphor of demon the demonic realm. Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. It's good to know that we have protection against Satan and the demonic realm, right? Otherwise, we'd be living a little fearful. It'd be like living a real horror movie. We'd be like, there's, there's demons everywhere, but they can't hurt us. But also, when we present the gospel, people are going to get saved. That's why it's, it's so important to present it. I don't care how you present it, but present the gospel. And I, I speak now to, to fellow pastors, some of whom feel like, well, I don't need to present the gospel weekly. I think we should. I think we should present the gospel because people are going to hear it. How do we know that there aren't people right here now that when they hear the gospel will receive it just because they're ready to? Or maybe they've never received it. Or maybe God's moving in their hearts or in their lives now. It doesn't mean everyone that hears the gospel is going to be saved, but it does mean when we present the gospel, people are going to get saved. And I have a real confidence that when we are preaching and sharing the gospel of Christ, that people are being moved, they're being drawn. I think that it maybe doesn't happen all at once. Sometimes it's a process going on in someone's life. They're getting ready to give their lives to Christ. But we are guaranteed success as the church when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against us. The third thing is, did I say third already? No, yeah, the third, the fourth thing is that the word for church in the Greek is ekklesia. And we can be tempted to think that that's just an assembly. 
that we are gathered together. This is the ecclesia. We know the building's not, right? We've heard that enough times to know that the building's not the church, but that the gathering of the people are the ecclesia. So we can, I heard someone say one time, well, the church today is exactly what the synagogue was in the Old Testament times. And the Bible says that Jesus, as it was his custom, went to the synagogue on Sabbath. And so they'll use that to say, well, the Sabbath is the same as church today. Jesus went to church, and so you ought to go to church as well. Now, I don't, I don't like that argument. I like the point. We, we do need to go to church. The, the Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. There is a benefit gathering together an hour, couple hours a week, and putting our minds on heavenly things putting our minds on the things of God, putting our minds on the scripture. Our minds are so many different places during the week for us to be able to take time to gather together with other people who love Jesus, knowing that we have that unity, that bond of faith. There is such a strength in us gathering together. So the word ecclesia, though, it's, um, it's a word that means most, this is my own personal, you know, um, statement on what ecclesia means. I didn't get this from anywhere, but it means city council. It's really what it was. There was an ecclesia in Athens. There were ecclesias in Greek cities. And ecclesias were, were citizens of that city who were called apart and who formed a group of, of, um, a group of individuals who had the right to declare war for that city, who had the right to determine who were going to be their leaders, they had authority. They were people gathered together from normal people who were given authority. That's the ecclesia, and that's the church. We are the church in the middle of the world. The Bible tells us, and I read this passage last Wednesday night, when I had COVID, by the way. Somebody watching online is going to be like, what? 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 I don't anymore. I tested negative several times, all right? Um, but... Uh, Oh, what was I just saying? I had to get silly, didn't I? I just had to get silly and, and, and lose my spot. Um, yeah, Wednesday night. I talked about a lot of things last Wednesday night. With COVID, I can't remember it. All right. Um, all right, Ecclesia. Let's just go back to Ecclesia and we'll pick it up from there and, and, we'll, and we'll see where it goes. Um, so um, the Ecclesia is like a council, like a city council that has authority and we have authority. We have authority in the spiritual realm. And this is important for us to realize. It's so much more than just a gathering. Listen to the kind of authority that Jesus said that we have. He says, and I will give you, this is again, Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. He's continuing on. You're Peter. On this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, keys in the Bible are a type of, of authority. The person that had the keys had the authority. Today, I'm not so sure that's the case. I learned early on in the early days of the church that I didn't want to have a key to the church because people also had my phone number. In the early days, my number was listed in the phone book and I had keys to the church. And so I would get calls from all kinds of ministries. Hey, we're locked out. Can you come let us in? And I finally gave my key away. And then I would say, I'm sorry, I don't have a key. You're going to have to find that in another way. But having the keys in the Bible is a type of an authority and we have the keys to be able to let people in. 
We can let people into heaven. We know how to do that. They do it by being transformed. They do it by being born again. And you are born again when you believe and you receive Christ into your life. And then you begin to live for him. And we are given that authority. This is really important for us to understand. It's so much more than just a group of people that gather together. Now, we're going to talk about the relationship that we are supposed to have in a few minutes, but just understanding that we have been placed here. I finally remembered where I was going. It took me that long, all that talking to get there. So last Wednesday night, I read a passage that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador stays in an embassy in a foreign country, but the embassy itself is part of the United States. A United States embassy in Israel is not part of Israel. The actual land it's on is part of the United States. And, and if you need help, if you're traveling in Israel and you find yourself in trouble with the law, maybe in, in some other kind of trouble, you want to get to the embassy. You want to make it to the embassy. Because once you get to the embassy, it's the laws of the United States that matter, not the laws of that country. And they will protect you because you are there. So the church is like an embassy from God. We are placed here on the world and the, and the things of heaven are what really matter here, not the things of the earth. Now, you're not going to be able to take my analogy too far. You won't be able to go out and commit a crime and run in, you know, to the church. Although some people do do that with sanctuary, right? I need sanctuary. So some people have that idea. But that's the idea of the church. We are here on the earth and we represent heaven. And we are called by God, not as citizens of this earth with our mind set on the things of the earth, but set in heaven. So we are the ecclesia, which is a group of people that were called out, that were given power and authority, and that's us. Finally, um, we have, um, uh, finally, that's not the last point that I have here, so my notes are going to be all messed up. Um, but finally, whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Well, let me read this. It says, uh, at the end of Matthew 16, 18 through 19. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, this has been so massively misused. So there are people who think that, well, gosh, if I bind something here on earth, it's going to be bound in heaven so I can bind. I bind you poverty. I bind you Satan. I bind you sickness. I bind you. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about that God has established already the way to get into heaven. In fact, the way it, re it reads in the Greek is what you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven and what you bind, yeah, what you, what you bind on earth has already been bound on earth. What you bind in heaven will already be bound. Well, it reads what it says here, which let me read what it says. And I'll read it like the Greek would be. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven or has already been bound in heaven is what the Greek is really saying. And whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. So the idea is that we're walking in authority already. That we already have the authority to be able to bind and loose and see people set free for Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean that we can just not like certain aspects of our lives and then continue on. All right, so that's the basic concept and idea of the church. <clears throat> Let's pick it up in verse 1 of Philippians uh, chapter 4. And it starts off with the word therefore. And anytime there's a therefore, you want to find out what it's there for. And so it's the last passage where Paul's talking about two people who are walking, one who's walking according to the world, 
and another one who is a citizen of heaven and is walking according to the things of God. That's the last passage that we just covered. And so because we are not citizens of this earth, but we are citizens of heaven, he says, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. And I love Paul's tenderness to this church in Philippi. We know that they had a special place in his heart. We know that he planted the church some 10 years before this. And I love the way he calls them my beloved. I think that there needs to be, there should be that kind of tenderness within the church that we really ought to be able to express the love that we have for, for one another. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren. Then he doesn't end there. He doesn't, he doesn't just kind of move on now. It's not like he's just going to go, I want you guys to know, I really love you. Now let's move on. He kind of lays it on him. He says, and joy and crown. My beloved, and joy and crown. For a man who is in prison in Rome, his joy and crown is the church in Philippi, the people that he loves there. Then he says to them, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. He adds beloved one more time, letting them know how much he loves them. But his whole point to them is because you're a citizen of heaven, you're my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord. We need to be rooted. We need to be grounded. We need to make a commitment that we're not going to be swayed and that we will stand fast in Christ. That's exactly what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi. I love you guys. You're my joy. You're my crown. Now stand fast in the Lord. And I think that that's because even in his time, there were people who weren't standing fast in Christ. There were people who were wishy-washy about their faith, just like there are today. There were people who really weren't following Jesus. There is always a mixture of genuine Christians and, and people that look like Christians but are not genuine Christians, always in the church. Jesus talked about the tares and the wheat. We also know that the church was going to grow abnormally large. And this is just an encouragement that you make sure that you are truly serving Christ. That, that there is a sincerity about your faith. We want to get rid of hypocrisy. We want to live for him with everything that we have. And so Paul says to them, stand fast in the Lord. Now, here we've got a couple of Greek names, which I'm going to butcher. I'm just going to let you know right from the beginning. All right. I practice them today, but that never helps me when it comes to, to, to Greek names, especially Greek names. So I implore Euroda and Syntychia. Syntyche? I'm going to go to Syntyche. Euroda and Syntyche to be of the same mind. These were two gals that were in the Philippian church and something had happened and there was a conflict between them. Conflicts happen in churches and sometimes someone does something and says something that hurts us. Uh, sometimes it's leadership that hurts us. Here it, it is, these two that should be really of the same mind, but they're not. We're not told what the problem was. We're not told anything about what kind of a, of a dispute they were having. But he tells them that they are supposed to be of the same mind. And then he says, I, I urge, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. Now we learn something else about these two gals. And that is that they helped him in laboring in the gospel. They, remember, the church of Philippi started with a woman's prayer meeting, I think could, would be a good way to say it, and that Lydia 
the seller of purple, where her heart was touched, and that, that a lot of people began to come to Christ in Philippi because of that. And these two gals were, were used by that. But for some reason, there's this kind of a conflict. And this is so practical because there will always be conflicts. Conflicts will arise. And sometimes someone's going to say something that's going to offend you and that's going to hurt you. And so he says, these women labored with him. Also notice in verse 3, he says, and I urge you also, true companion. That's an interesting statement from Paul. That's, that's a statement that you ought to underline, circle, and think about a little bit in the future. It literally means yoke fellow is the literal word. In fact, if you've got a King James Bible, I think it uses the word true yoke fellow. So the idea of a yoke fellow would be someone who does work with you. Right? So you've got horses that are yoked together and they're both doing the work. You've got oxen that are yoked together and they're both doing the work. You have people that God brings alongside of us who are yoke fellows. They help to do the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's part of what a church really is, is that we are put together as a group of people who are given gifts of pastors and evangelists who help equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We are to do the work together. If you look up this word, true companion, in the Greek, you're going to see that it means a fellow laborer or a spouse. So you can imagine that there are those, because people try to find things in the Bible that they can point out that other people haven't seen. So there are those who will say that they think that Paul had a wife who was living in Philippi and that he was calling her the true companion. I don't think at all that's what Paul's saying, right? I don't think that's even close to what Paul's saying. In, in fact, I think we could make a pretty good case that at this point, Paul is single because of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I, I'm going to say we can make a strong case that Paul is single at this point. He may be talking about the pastor of the church in Philippi, my true companion, my true yoke fellow, the one who's pulling along with me here in the work that we're doing there. It may be that he's telling the pastor, you have some responsibility here to help these women who labored with me in the gospel. Then he also says with Clement also. Now, Clement is an interesting name because there's Clement of Rome. There were some early church fathers who were very influential. And Clement of Rome was one of them who was very influential. Um, but Clement is a common name as well. But we get an idea now that this church in Philippi is not just this group of people that gather and disperse but they're a group of people that minister together. They're a group of people that God calls together side by side. And I think there's something special about God bringing people together in a church to do work, to do the work of the ministry. That God calls us, that we would do that work that he's called us to do. And if there is some kind of a, of a problem with you and someone else, well, the Bible tells us in plenty of places, Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We need to be so ready to let go, let God take care of things, to be able to forgive people for offenses that have taken place, to let people, maybe let people know, I, I, I was hurt by that but I forgive you. And to be that kind of person that does it, that's exactly what Paul's writing about here as he's talking about this church. And then he says, 
um, Clement also and the rest of the fellow workers, so there's more than just these guys that he's talking about, whose names are written in the book of life. So these guys have eternal life. He says here in verse 4, and I, I want to talk about this some now, and then I want to come back and talk about this again next week. Okay? So he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Uh, that is the theme of the book of Philippians, and he is in prison. And this life, for all people, by the way, has been called a tragedy because we struggle. We go through difficulties, and then we die. And that's a tragedy. The fact that all of us have, have death in our future is a tragedy. But Jesus rose from the grave and gives us eternal life forever. He comes into the midst of lives that are headed towards death and he transforms us and he gives us life. No wonder Paul can rejoice while he's in prison. Paul can be in prison, finishing out the tragedy of his life. He'll, be, he'll stand before Nero. He'll be condemned to death. He'll be beheaded in Rome. It's not far away from where he's at now. But he says to them, as he's talking to them about their interaction with one another, rejoice in the Lord always. That means when times are good, you rejoice. When times are bad, you rejoice. If you're at home and you're sick with COVID, you rejoice. One of the worst things that happened to me, I, I had a pretty light case. I was vaccinated. So, you know, vaxxed and COVID, both of them. I had a pretty light case. But one of the things that happened to me was that I got a stomach ache, a really bad stomach ache. And for two or three days, I just laid in front of my TV with my computer on my lap and told the Lord about the third day. I shared this a little bit earlier with some of here. Um, I just told the Lord, you know, you could take me now, God. An upset stomach is such a drag, isn't it? To be nauseated, to be upset with an upset stomach. I'm just like, I I'm good with going right now, God. If you just want to take me out of this now and I can go and be with you in heaven, I'm, I'm good with that. But rejoice in the Lord always. Even when you got a really bad stomach ache, even when life is a tragedy. And I'm, I'm using a really light, frivolous example. But I also want to say that I know people are going here, are going through real difficulties, real struggles, struggles that affect your life, struggles that affect your health, struggles that affect what you can do now, what you're going to be able to do in the future. And yet, we are to rejoice because our future is with Him. Because our future is that we will be his bride in heaven. And he says, rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice. And then in this topic of this conflict that's taking place within the church, he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And that is that we are to lovingly, gently encourage those around us who may be going astray. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 that if someone is sinning, you who are spiritual, go to that person with a spirit of gentleness and restore them considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So there is even supposed to be this spirit of gentleness. We think about rebuking people. That person's doing this, it's wrong. I'm going to go tell them what they're doing, it's wrong. Well, I, I hope you have a spirit of gentleness when you go because that's what we're supposed to do. What is it? Um, 1 Timothy 2, 24, I think. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those that are in opposition to him. 
So when you see something that is wrong, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. There's got to be a gentleness. And this is a gentleness that God wants us to have within the church. And I think that there are people who do leave a church because there's not this gentleness. Because there can be people, are, again, right? People are messy. People sin. People make mistakes. People do things they're not supposed to do. And some of you guys that are here may be making your way back to church after you've been hurt at a church. And you've got a little bit of trepidation as you're coming in. You're kind of like, I'm not sure that I really want to do this. But I really believe that opening yourself up to loving the way that God wants us to love as a church is the real sign to this world that Jesus is genuine. And they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And so we have to figure out how to develop and demonstrate that love that we have for one another. And when there's difficulties, when you have to straighten things out between a couple of gals with weird Greek names, being tender and gentle, being kind is so important. I, I also, as I come to the end of this study, just want to say to those of you who have been hurt by people in the church, and the church is made up of people, so they're part of the church, I, I want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you as a representative of the church. I want to say I'm sorry. And my hope is that you would be able to get by it. And I realize, again, there are very real hurts that happen. Hurts that sometimes cause people lifelong pain that will never return to the church again because of a, of a hurt that is there. And so how important is verse 5 for you and me? As we consider, we're not in church just for a few weeks or a few couple of years. Hey, we'll be here until Jesus returns. I, I used to say, until we die or Jesus returns, but I think we're close to Jesus returning, by the way. But verse 5 again, let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. This is really a unity issue. God wants there to be a unity within the church. And let me just give you a few verses on unity and we'll be done. Um, in John 17, 23, Jesus prayed for our unity. He said this. Um, I'm going to come into the middle of his prayer here. I in them and you in me, that they, speaking of the church, may be perfect in one. Talk about a statement of unity. Jesus prayed that we as the church would be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. We are a representation of the love of Christ in the world. And there's something about our unity and the love that we have for one another and the gentleness and the demonstration of that love that helps the world to be able to see that. Psalms 133, 1 through 3, you guys will recognize this immediately, especially if you've been in church for a while. You probably sang the song. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down the edges of his garment. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mount, mountains of Zion, for there the Lord uh, commanded blessings, life evermore. Let me read you just, just um, one more. Colossians 3, 13 and 14. Remember, we're talking about unity. Bear with one another. 
and forgive, uh, excuse me, again, I'm coming in the middle of a statement, all right? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. And above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is what real maturity is, and it's the bond of perfection. May there truly be a tenderness. The, the, the part of this passage that really speaks to me is again, verse five, let your gentleness be known to all men. That ought to be who we are in the church. As we interact with one another, there will be things that are done that shouldn't be done. There'll be things that are said that shouldn't be said. But in all of it, let our gentleness be known throughout the church. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we can take time to take a look at these five verses as Paul deals with a contention in the middle of the Philippian church. And Lord, we want to have love, tenderness, gentleness, caring, uh, forgiveness for one another. Thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you have forgiven us and that you are doing a work inside of us. And Lord, we pray that this church and the church in general would be what you want it to be, that you would be working in us, that you would be revealing to us what we as genuine Christians are supposed to do and how we are supposed to live. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.